Tax Freedom Day is a concept developed and trademarked by American businessman Dallas Hostetler. The idea is to calculate the first day of the year on which everyone, theoretically, has earned enough income to pay the nation's taxes. Now, there are many different calculations for Tax Freedom Day, and it's going to fluctuate country by country, but generally, this year it falls on April 18th in the United States, mid-April as well in Australia, May 2 in Canada, end of May in the Czech Republic, and mid-June in the UK. Now, depending on where you live, as I listed those dates and locations, you felt different emotions. It burns me up. Americans are tax-free more than two weeks before me here in Canada. But at least I don't live in the UK. Most of us get upset about the idea of taxes. But Ron Swanson from Parks and Rec probably explains it best in his tutelage to a nine-year-old student. Let's get started. Life, liberty, and property. It's John Locke. This is your lunch. Now, you should be able to do whatever you want to with this, right? If you want to eat all of it, great. If you want to throw it away in the garbage, that's your prerogative. But here I come, the government. And I get to take 40% of your lunch. And that, Lauren, is how taxes work. That's not fair. You're learning. Cass Sunstein is one of the founders of behavioral economics, which combines elements of economics and psychology to understand how and why people behave the way they do. He says Tax Freedom Day is a perfect example. People tend to get upset about that date, but Sunstein says we should celebrate it. Without taxes, there would be no liberty. Without taxes, there would be no property. Without taxes, few of us would have any assets worth defending. Sunstein explains taxes are not like fees levied on those who directly enjoy a service. They're levied on the community as a whole and generally tiered so higher income people pay more. Now, maybe not enough more, but more. Rights to private property, freedom of speech, immunity from police abuse, free exercise of religion, social security, health care, even prosecution for tax evaders, all paid for through taxes. Good argument. Maybe unlikely to sway all of us, though. And behavioral economics can explain why. Today on Stories and Strategies, no long lunch breaks, no mental shortcuts. We dig deep into behavioral economics and how to use it in our day-to-day communication strategies. My name is Doug Downs. Music off the top, the theme from Parks and Recreation by NBC Universal. Of course, Nick Offerman as Ron Swanson. My guest this week is Adrian Wheeler, joining us today from Prague in the Czech Republic. Hey, Adrian. Hi there. How are things in Prague today? It's snowing. <laughs> Heavily? Is it that big, thick stuff that just comes down and blankets the ground and it's all white and fluffy, or is it uh, miserable? It's just enough to be annoying. <laughs> I hear you. Adrian, you bring 42 years professional communications experience to the table. So by my math, that's 1976. Good for you. 
You have a master's in English from Cambridge. You've authored several publications, including Crisis Communications Management and Writing for the Media in a PRCA Practical Guide. And I know you work as a consultant with a number of UK public relations and public affairs consultancies. Now, Adrian, you and I met at a PRCA event for Latin America. Sadly, it was virtual. It wasn't uh, next time, maybe. We'll be in Buenos Aires. But we struck up a connection right away because I have a mad passion for neuroscience as it applies to how we communicate. And you have a mad passion for behavioral economics. BE isn't so much a single discipline as much as three schools of thought, right? Can you explain what they are? I guess I can, or at least I'll do my best. Um, you've got, on the one hand, your special subject, which is uh, neuroscience, you know, how the brain actually works. You've got another um, theme, which is uh, classical and neoclassical economics, which is, in other words, traditional economic thought, which uh, governs uh, most of the forecasts that, uh, in turn, govern our lives. And then you've got a new element, which is um, experimental psychology, which has been going on now for 20, 25 years, mainly, I should say, in California, um, where researchers are studying human beings, making decisions uh, and remembering things and trying to figure out uh, what the brain is actually doing uh, in real life. So put all those together in a kind of hybrid or synthesis, and you've got behavioral economics. Perfect. So let me let me shift to a, a pretty much an out-of-the-box question. Why are corporate key messages and news releases so dull? Huh. Well, that's a very good question, and it's the bane of our lives, isn't it? Um, I mean, the result is no one reads them. <laughs> that's right. Okay, so one answer would be that corporate messages are usually uh, written to please senior people inside an organization and um, it's not their fault but by definition these folk cannot see their organization the way the outside world sees it of course they can't uh, any more than we could it's their whole life and there's a word for that it's called the insider syndrome which is why third parties like ourselves um, can from time to time be useful Another answer is that, um, this is my experience, I don't know if it's yours as well, a lot of senior executives think their messages should be dull because from their point of view, they think dull equates to serious. And of course, that's wrong. Um, but they're also, by and large, I'm generalizing, uh, nervous about saying anything uh, a little bit too interesting, a little bit offbeat, a little bit off the wall, you know, stepping off the well-trodden pathway because they think it's risky. And of course, what they're missing and what people like us have to tell them again and again is that their audiences are receiving somewhere between 4,000 and 5,000 commercial messages every single day of their lives. Absolutely, yeah. Through their eyes and ears. And obviously, we can't process even a fraction of that torrent, even if we wanted to. So uh, we block most of it out. And the bottom line is, if you can't capture the audience's attention versus the other 4,999 messages on any given day, you haven't even started. So I started my communications career in 1986, so not far removed from you. Um, but the Corpcom 
part of what I do, public relations, was 2001. Actually, the week after 9-11. I, I missed being in the media to report on that. Uh, I'd already shifted to public relations. And I can attest to that idea that you just described, that scenario of well-meaning but awfully cautious and safe executives when it comes to comms really wanting almost to appear to their peers to be the most serious person in the community or in, in uh, the state or in the province or in the country and really not wanting to go anywhere near the line, let, al let alone go over the line. You started 10 years before me. My question is, are we gradually getting better with executives this way? Because our, our job is to help them see things from the outside in and the inside out. Are we getting better or, or is it exactly the same? If you want to take a dive into ancient history, i.e. when I started my career, uh, the answer would be no. Uh, we're getting worse. Wow. Uh, we're, we're getting more solemn, uh, more scared, I guess, is one of the factors there. But for what it's worth, uh, one of the pieces of advice which I uh, offer to you know, my clients and, and uh, people that uh, come to our training courses is that the closer... Uh, B2B and corporate communications can be to B2C, FMCG, uh, the better. We don't find these um, failings, sometimes we do, but as a rule, we don't find them uh, anything like so prevalent uh, when people are uh, communicating on behalf of brands. But when it comes to companies, corporations, uh, they do. And by the way, Doug, I think one of the reasons for that is that the, the audience, which is front and central in their minds, tends to be uh, Wall Street or the Stock Exchange. Or the board of directors. Right. Yeah. Yeah, no, I, I, as I say, they're, they're appealing to their peers instead of appealing to their stakeholders, their audience, their customers. So when we make up our minds about something, I get that there's less logical and rational thought than any of us would care to admit. It is not a linear process. It's not a matter of just having the right words. Our brains tend to follow a familiar, fast, and primitive set of patterns. You'll hear people describe this as the limbic system taking over. There's great talk within neuroscience now, forget this talk about the limbic system. That's a somewhat antiquated notion, but the amygdala which is part of what we think of as the, as the limbic system, is that, that little uh, almond-shaped piece in the brain that triggers those primitive patterns. Um, if something is shocking and different, that's a key message I'm not used to. There is a part of my brain that automatically recoils, that seeks safety, but there's more to it than just appealing to those parts of the brain. Surely, if all we did was follow those primitive patterns to appeal to people, we would just be biologically blind organisms. But we're not. No, we're certainly not. Um, I think it's a question of balance. You know, what a piece of work is man? Absolutely. But to your point, um, evolution has a lot to tell us um, about uh, how we operate and, and why we behave the way that we do. Um, so, for instance, as I'm sure most of your uh, listeners will know, um, Homo sapiens, us, we've only been around for 200,000 years, which is a, a, a blink of an eye in evolutionary terms. Right. And by the way, that just means 10,000 generations uh, where, uh, you know, generation after generation, useful 
uh, adaptations can be passed on to the next generation. So that's that's really nothing. By comparison, other mammals have been on Earth for 200 million years. Uh, but they're not doing paintings. So <laughs> we, Homo sapiens, we've obviously made incredible strides in all kinds of things, in speech, probably first and foremost, art, social cooperation, technology, clever ways to sustain ourselves. But the thing is, we haven't really had very much time yet to evolve that far from our ancestors on the East African savannah. And so to your point, you know, the amygdala, what we used to call the limbic system, and the bits of our brains that control emotions still respond much the same way that they did 200,000 years ago. And um, that's why, for example, we have the Ten Commandments. If we, if, if, we, if we didn't need them, we wouldn't have them, but we do need them, so we have them. Um, our conscious minds have been described, I think quite picturesquely, as being a bit like a man riding an elephant. He thinks he's in charge, but he's not really. And I think it's the same with us. We like to think that we're rational and logical, but we're not really. Uh, emotions have a much, much more powerful role to play in governing our behavior than anyone teaches us, or than we might like to think. And one one key example is um, uh, from behavioral economics, loss aversion is one of the big drivers here. I feel loss much more than the benefit of gain. Give uh, me a 10% chance of living, and I'm very sad, but give me a 90% chance of death, and I'm absolutely devastated just in the way that gets characterized. Yes. Uh, it's all about how we process information. Um, to your point, um, Rory Sutherland, who, who you know. He was on the podcast, yes. A couple episodes. Well, well done you. So, so you'll already know he's one of the great creative geniuses in advertising today. And uh, he addresses this point, and I think he explains it very well. What he says is people are just no good at maths, uh, and they're even worse at statistics. And I suspect that, again, goes back to the savannah, and all the wars and plagues and catastrophes humankind has undergone ever since and is still undergoing. So if we look back at evolution, if people were inclined to err on the side of caution, in other words, be loss-averse or risk-averse, they were probably more likely to survive than people who took a larger proportion of risks. And that meant they had children and the other people didn't. So the bias towards loss aversion uh, got passed down to future generations. And this kind of makes sense because 200,000 years ago, uh, maths wasn't very much use if what uh, made the difference was trying to decide if that waving bush was just a bush or maybe a hungry lion. Mm -hmm. And also it wasn't much use to you if you were a farmer in 1800 AD, fairly recently. But now things have changed. Uh, maths is very useful indeed as his stats, and we have to catch up. And in due course, we will. And we are getting better. My 16-year-old daughter can solve equations that make my brain hurt. But she still reads the fridge for chocolate at two o'clock in the morning. <laughs> That's perfect. I read one of your papers on behavioral economics, loved it. And you had a note in there about Ikea, which really stood out to me. My wife and I love Ikea. We're not crazy about putting the stuff together, of course, but we, we will spend hours on putting the billy together. Um, we do love the furniture. So is there something going on 
from a, a behavioral economics perspective with IKEA's model here? Yes, I, I believe there is. And in fact, behavioral economists have actually called it the IKEA effect. And what it amounts to is that our brains are wired to place greater value on things where we have invested time and effort, even when there's no rational argument for making that judgment. So, for instance, that's why we're usually disappointed by the trade-in price we get quoted for a car, <laughs> one that we've carefully serviced and cleaned and washed, you know, for the last five years. Uh, you know, we think it's worth much more than it really is. Or a dinner we've made. <laughs> Same thing. Speak for yourself. <laughs> anyway, to your point, IKEA are clever, super clever. They know that making a cupboard difficult to assemble will make us love it more. And it's not wrong and it's not bad. Uh, it's just human nature. And uh, the IKEA effect, so-called, is just one of a hundred or more um, unconscious biases uh, that affect our behavior in ways that we're very often unconscious of. And uh, the whole point of behavioral economics as a discipline or a science or whatever you want to call it is to make us uh, more aware of these unconscious biases and to know, this might be the bottom line, that emotion plays a far greater role in our decision-making than we're taught to believe. Let me quote someone to you. This is Antonio Damasio, um, a neuroscientist, you'll know him, also a poet at the University of Southern California. And I think it puts it in a nutshell. What he says is, we are not thinking machines with feelings. We are instead feeling machines that think. That's so perfect. You know, the bottom line, if there is one, is to know that emotion plays a, a much greater role in our decision making than we are ever taught to believe that it does. And uh, moreover, if we work in the PR industry or in uh, corporate communications or uh, whatever we call it, uh, we need to frame our communications with stakeholders with these emotional factors uh, much more strongly in mind because they matter much, much more than facts do. And, and I love the IKEA principle because in marketing in particular, we're so busy trying to make things convenient, right? 7-Eleven experience. And the IKEA factor is the opposite. How can we make this just inconvenient enough for you that once it's done, we cherish it, right? When, when we were... Uh, giving that conference uh, to the Latin American PRCA. Um, I was one of the presenters, you were the moderator, and you asked me a question at the very end of the session. So I want to flip that around. I want to ask you the same question. It was about the brain, um, in this case, behavioral economics. How much do we actually understand about human behavior from a behavioral economic standpoint compared to how much there likely is to understand at some point in time? Are we scratching the surface or making great headway? What a really interesting question. Um, well, you'd have to say that 200 years ago, when classical economics was born, uh, we understood very little, um, either from an observational or obviously from a medical point of view, which is why classical economics uh, is almost always wrong uh, when it tries to predict what people are going to do, either individually or you know, in large numbers. Uh, but to try to answer your question, I think, um, this is why I'm so excited, that in the last 20 or so years, we've made huge strides 
uh, in understanding what's really going on. You know, why people remember things, why people make bad choices, uh, why people uh, devote very little time to important matters and a great deal of time to things that fascinate them, leisure, uh, consumer goods, the restaurant they're going to next Saturday. Uh, from the point of view of classical economics, these are all illogical and um, confound the basic principles uh, by which human beings are supposed to operate. And yet we now know that that's actually uh, what human beings do. Uh, again, to your point, uh, there must be a thousand years ahead of us of getting to know better uh, how the brain works, what's really going on there. I mean, we are scratching the surface, but we're a lot further ahead than we were, um, for example, uh, as recently as 1990. And I'll close with a quote. I don't know who it's from. I suspect anonymous, but it's, if the brain were so simple, we could understand it. We couldn't. <laughs> Loved having you on the podcast at last, Adrian. It's been great to see you. Well, thank you very much for inviting me. If you'd like to send a message to my guest, Adrian Wheeler, best way to do that is by connecting with him on Twitter. The address is in the show notes. Stories and Strategies is a co-production of Podcasts That Pop and JGR Communications. We're hoping you might leave a rating for this podcast on either Apple or Spotify. Reviews are also very welcome. And you can connect with us on Twitter at comms underscore podcast. We're also on Instagram. More than anything else, this is good behavioral economics, Adrian. If you like this episode, would you do us a favor and tell just one friend? Nice and simple. Thanks for listening.